From the Lean Enterprise Institute in Boston, this is the WLEI Podcast, where we share stories of people making the world better through lean thinking and practice. For more information about LEI, including how we can help you apply lean thinking, please visit lean.org. Welcome to the WLEI Podcast. I'm Matt Savis with the Lean Enterprise Institute. Today we have two special guests with us, Miles Arnone, CEO of Rebuild Manufacturing and Bonnie Davis, its Chief Lean Officer. Rebuild Manufacturing is a company with a purpose to reestablish an industrial tradition in the United States. It was founded in 2020 by former CEO of Amazon's worldwide consumer business, Jeff Wilkie. Its model relies on strategic acquisition and collaboration. It acquires companies in critical sectors aiming to create a one-stop shop supply chain solution from engineering to production persuade companies to keep business in the U.S. versus sending it overseas. As Miles puts it, our dependence upon offshore supply chains has left a big hole in the economy, jeopardized national defense, and hollowed out America's middle class. Join us to learn how Rebuild Manufacturing is tackling this enormous and very worthy problem. Welcome, Miles Arnone and Bonnie Davis uh, to the WLEI podcast. I'm your host today, Matt Savis, Executive Director of Content for the Lean Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by our president, Josh Howell. First, uh, I just want to thank uh, you guys for for joining us here on the podcast today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, So we're here in Framingham, Massachusetts at a company called Rebuild Manufacturing. Uh, Miles, you're the CEO of the organization. Bonnie, you're the chief lean officer of the organization. Um, I figure we'll just start off with the basics. So, um, Miles, could you just explain what is Rebuild Manufacturing and what is its purpose? Sure, thank you. So, I guess I'd start with what its purpose is. And Rebuild's purpose is to try to help reestablish or be part of reestablishing you know, an industrial tradition in the United States that goes back a long way, but which we've let kind of go fallow the last 30 years or so. Mm-hmm. And I think we've all seen, and it was really crystallized for many people by COVID, but had been going on for a lot longer, that our dependence upon offshore sources of supply for critical and non-critical items has really left a big hole in the economy. And it's also created a situation where a lot of people have lost their path to the middle class. So manufacturing mm-hmm. used to be a great way for a high school graduate or you know someone who, who didn't have maybe the top shelf uh, university degree to over time build a pretty successful career for themselves, be able to get that house and the boat and have two kids and send them to school and all that. And we've kind of hollowed that all out. So we have a kind of a upper class of very information centric professionals from the university system. And then we have a much larger number of people that are much less well-educated and that are unfortunately, I think partly, um, I don't want to say doomed, but maybe yes, doomed to sort of work in service industry jobs, right? Mm-hmm. And sort of service industry was going to be better than the manufacturing industry. Unfortunately, for a lot of people, that means working at Chipotle. And, mm-hmm. you know, as you know, if you've gone into a Chipotle, you probably could master all the tasks there in a month. If you can master all the tasks there in a month, then there's not room for productivity growth. If there's not room for productivity growth, there's not room for wage growth. Mm-hmm. Whereas in manufacturing, you can go into a manufacturing environment and just based on the complexity of those systems, you can build a whole career there. You can improve, you know, add skills, contribute to the improvement of the enterprise over decades, and that's how you get wage growth. That's how you get productivity growth. So when we took all that out, we sort of hollowed out a lot of the economy, I think, and created a situation where I think now we see it in the social political system where where people are really kind of leaning hard right or hard left because they don't see something in the American system for them. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, because they don't have a path forward economically in a lot of cases. So that's why. That's not what Rebuild is, but that's why. And the what of Rebuild is we need to develop a model of industrialization in this country that works for the unique characteristics of the U.S., right? So as a people, we're different than other cultures. And so there's certain things that we do well and things we don't. And we need to kind of take advantage of those things while bringing in the best practices we can from other places. So in our model, we have a assemblage of companies. We call them member companies with really um, interesting and uh, I would say differentiated technical capabilities. So very engineering centric. And then we try to build behind that a whole series of productive cap- capabilities so that we could take engineering and merge that with process knowledge and create products with very high knowledge content, therefore good margins, therefore the ability to pay good wages that can be competitive in worldwide markets, right? And so in a very short form, I would say Rebuild aspires to be like China Incorporated, but Mm -hmm. without stealing your IP. 
So we can provide you everything from industrial design of your product, the mechanics, mechanical systems, electrical, firmware, system software, um, production line design, automation design. We can build a complete factory for you, and then we can operate that factory. We can do any of those steps for our customers, and we focus that on uh, areas of light weighting. So think composites, specialty materials, right? Um, life sciences, so a lot of biomaterials and biopharmaceutical production, electrification, mobility. Mm-hmm. So that that encompasses obviously EVs, but also airborne and other you know vehicular types. And then smart devices, which is kind of a catch-all since basically everything is getting more and more processing capability and intelligence in it. We participate in those spaces. So we offer our customers design, we offer them production, and they can choose anywhere in that spectrum. So you're trying to become a sort of one-stop shop. Can you bring that to life for us? Like, is there an example where you can walk us through that complete value stream sure. of service delivery for? Sure, I can, a couple of examples. So one would be we have a customer that's an EV tall. So these are electric vertical takeoff and lift aircraft. It's sort of an emerging section in the aerospace industry. And for them, we started by designing the blades for their propeller systems. So we have a large aerospace design capability engineer set in Colorado. We designed those for them. That design work led us to make the prototypes at one of our plants that builds thermoset composite systems. And now we've won the contract to build the complete production level volumes of their propellers and the mechanical systems, the metals principally in the rotor hubs in another plant of ours. So we started by providing them engineering work early in their life cycle. And now we've been able to continue that all the way through to now where we'll be, we went through engineering, low volume production, and then we'll go into high level production end to end. And and the reason why we're able to do that is because our entire business is built around a set of principles. We call them the rebuild way, 16 principles that govern how we run our business and how we conduct ourselves. And they put a premium on transparency and not having sort of zero sum games with your customers. So they know from the very beginning, everything about our costs, what we need to earn, why we need to earn it, and anything we can do from that point forward to improve the economics of the production or the product, we share with them in a pre-arranged way. So they know that we're very aligned with them and we're aligned with them for the long term. And this is actually something I'm sure we'll get into, but that mechanism, that idea is what requires that we be a a lean-oriented or continuous improvement-oriented enterprise because to maintain our competitiveness in the market, but also to keep our customers competitive themselves, we have to regularly improve the quality, the throughput, the cost of what we provide them. And that can't be done. It can, but it's not effective to do it in what I would call an American-style way, which is a huge step function approach. Like, we'll work on this problem really hard, we'll make a big improvement, and then we'll relax and we'll worry about something else. We have to just grind out that quarter percent every week or every month and do that continuously. And so that whole philosophy in this value chain that we just described is what led us to this point where we have to embed lean processes. Another example would be... um, Bicycle wheels. So we manufacture thermoplastic composite bicycle wheels. We developed our own technology to process that very in a very automatic fashion, which allows us to displace Chinese-produced wheels hmm. for bike manufacturers here in the States, for example. So we worked with them on the design. We developed and built our own automation. So we have companies that do that ourselves. And then we deployed that automation in one of our plants, and now we produce the unit products for the customer. So I want to dig into that model a little bit more, but before we do that, I do want to continue framing up rebuild. And so you described for us what you see as the the problem to solve uh, and the current state of U.S. manufacturing. What do you envision? What's the target state? I hope you appreciate this, but I'm kind of framing up an A3 here a little bit. But what's the what target state? Yeah, box. This is probably box eight. Boxes two and three. Yeah. Yep. How many boxes? Yeah, you're mixing your two and three for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Where do you see not just rebuild, but what what is your target state for for U.S. manufacturing five or ten years from now? What would you consider successful? I think there's a number of levels we have to think about. I think one societally, I would like there to be a greater appreciation of the importance of manufacturing. Mm-hmm. That you can't run a country or a society on IT alone. <laughs> And all of its derivatives, for example, that physical goods, their design, their manufacture, their distribution is a meaningful and and uh, honorable profession. So I, I think that 
I realize that's a very generic thing, but I think it's fair to say that in a lot of the country, up until very recently, there wasn't much of appreciation for that of late. Mm, IT and burritos. Yes, burritos were also right in there. So um, pizza too, maybe. Anyway, so I think that'd be, at one level, it's that, that there's just a general interest and appreciation that young people want to pursue careers, that they see something more akin to an opportunity like in Germany, where there's an apprentice programs that are more well established. Uh, So I'd like to see that kind of infrastructure being built and valued, and we want to be a part of driving that. More locally, I think it's that um, a, a larger proportion of our GDP is coming from manufacturing and that we are able to be more self-sustaining in that regard so mm. that we're not dependent upon uh, countries that, frankly, do not have our interests at heart for critical elements, whether those be semiconductors or materials or you know components that go into things like lithium batteries, et cetera. So greater independence. Um, and... Uh, and again, I think if we have both those things, we'll have a virtuous cycle. So we'll have effective manufacturing that will demonstrate that you can make good returns in manufacturing that will make people more interested in investing in manufacturing. And you'll get that positive feedback loop and go up, right? Because really, this has all been driven by, you know, kind of a culturally oriented error, which private equity, I think, foisted upon the country at large, which was that I'm going to raise a fund. I'm going to buy a business in three years. I'm going to make that business a lot better and then I'm going to flip it. And it's impossible in most highly technical or certainly physical goods oriented endeavors to make substantial long-lasting change in that kind of time frame because if they're going to buy business and sell three or four years then they need a one-year roi like that thing has to start generating increased profit in a year so it's in the books for the process of selling the company a year or two after that that's just not possible so we have to change that whole mindset Mm. right so when i think about the future state it would be that we would try to have a little bit longer term horizon in this country right Mm. than we might now given the scale of that ambition is there partnership then that rebuild has with i mean even like the federal government to bring that kind of thing to light or is it really just you know we're out here to kind of demonstrate what this could look like on the scale that we can that, that is, you know, feasible yeah. to us and, and hope, hope it gets so it in, inspiration. Or in a sense, our most important partners are one, the people that come and work with us, right? We hire a lot of people and bring them into this environment. And then our customers and our vendors, that ecosystem, that's really the partnership set that makes the most difference. Mm-hmm. Obviously, today, the government is putting a lot of money into things that would, if not primarily, secondarily, you know, juice the manufacturing market. Yeah. But our experience is that that is that one, that's a really hard thing to manage in an explicit way. Sure. It's not obviously always built around a purely economically rational set of ideas. There are policy initiatives that may or may not align with what should or shouldn't happen. Sure. So while we welcome the government being involved in creating demand, particularly, say, for example, around EVs, we don't want in any way to be dependent upon that as a primary driver of our success. So we welcome it. We work with those people to help try and guide policy, but we explicitly want to be able to succeed independent of that. Because, you know, if the administration changes, right, again and again, those things can oscillate pretty quickly, right? And so they're really hard to depend upon. And I think it's fair to say that, again, in the American model is not likely over the very long term to be one where you can depend upon state implementation or, or contribution, right? Other than probably through the the military industrial complex, right? Because there's a lot of, you know, sort of stability slash, unfortunately, inertia there too. Although, of course, they're trying to make a lot of changes there as well. Well, I was really uh, pleasantly surprised when Bonnie showed up on our radar because you you have a chief lean officer. And as representatives of the Lean Enterprise Institute, that suggested you think this is something important to be part of this great initiative. Uh, I'm curious to hear from Bonnie about can you explain a little bit about what you're doing inside of these organizations, which I imagine are, you know, they're all over the map in terms of what they're doing, the different technologies that they're using. Um, what is, I guess, the state of, of lean thinking inside the companies and how are you trying to, what's your method to try to, what, what's your what's your objective behind uh, behind your role? Well, I like to think we're building our rebuild lean operating system kind of as we speak. So okay. how, how is lean thinking kind of infused in everything that we do? Um, and it really touches all part of the business from the very beginning to the end. And when I joined eight months ago, you know, I spent the initial couple of months really just 
you know, going out and, and understanding the current state where, where everyone was. And we had a lot of organic lean thinking going on already mm. across the company. And some cases people didn't even realize that, you know, it, it fit within that lean thinking model. So just really en enabling that. Um, one of the first things has been doing a lean overview for leaders training across the company, kind of getting us all aligned. And, and I think some of the aha moments that, um, I've gotten out of that training is that um, that lean thinking really is how do we continually improve everything we do? Like look at everything we do as experimental and kind of create that that lens to see things through. So we're looking for obstacles to flow and how we can make that better. Mm -hmm. And how do you do that? It's by embracing all this innovation and creativity and knowledge that we already possess in our people and just engaging that. Mm. Um, we do a lot of collaboration across the companies and I found a lot of value in that. So just promoting that we are, we're doing um, on A3 thinking across the company. Now we found that helps the collaboration. So whenever we find opportunities, how can we tackle those together? And we're really starting to build out a, a framework for what does lean transformation look like for us? Mm -hmm. um, looking at our value streams holistically, you know, where are the, the places there that we can enable um, that flow of value to the customer to happen, you know, quicker and more effectively. And, and that's going on across the company. You know, a lot of these companies, and I guess in your own development, you're trying to come up with new ways to manufacture things. Mm -hmm. And I imagine a big part of that is technology. Uh, when listening to that interview, that was done a couple of years ago with Miles and, and Jeff. I was struck by something Jeff said about the the power of layering on computer science to essentially lean logistics operations. He said it was a way to rapidly scale frontline ideas across a large system. I'm curious to hear maybe from Bonnie first, but also Miles about what are you learning about that, not just traditional tactical lean stuff that we're all familiar with, but as you explore these new technologies these companies are developing, particularly when it comes to process development, how does that play into are you are you are you thinking of new ways to to use these ideas in in, in different ways? How how's that impacting the role or the way of thinking, if if it is at all? Well, I think we have a a, a nice advantage in that we do have a two areas of the business that really help us do that. We've got a core software group that is part of Rebuild, and then we've got um, a digital team that's, how do we take the and capture the information mm. um, that's there and, and use that along with lean thinking so that we can have data-driven decision-making, that we can see where we need to improve. Um, you know, maybe you can add on to that. Sure. We've got kind of a vision yeah, where I, that's going to go. Yeah, I think there's, as Bonnie said, we have two areas that Jeff really drove us to build out. One is what we call Rebuild Digital. So the idea that we should be trying to instrument all of our production and capture information from it in real time, and then use that data, analyze that data to identify areas for improvement, right? And ensure control. And you'd be surprised, you know, again, one of the things we didn't talk about is that the general character of U.S. industry, other than the major producers, is a lot of small to mid-sized companies that don't tend to be very digitally oriented or software-oriented, computer science-oriented, frankly. They think of computer science as like, I have an ERP system, right? So, like, that's what I've got, right? And so we've been able to build into our production lines sensing systems, essentially, that we believe will allow us to produce at a much higher level of quality, right, and much more more rapidly tune our processes because a lot of these processes are pretty sophisticated and run at high speed. And so mm -hmm. if they get out of line, you're in trouble, right? But uh, the other area is what we call core software group, which has been really impactful. It took a little while because again, a lot of our companies, the member company general managers didn't understand how they could deploy software. They never had that resource available to mm -hmm. them. But now what they're doing very often is developing projects or programming programs that are used locally to improve their processes. So CDI is a good example. Mm -hmm. We have a company cutting dynamics in the Cleveland area. They're a large metals manufacturer for aerospace and other applications. And they often work with other companies that um, send them over through uh, EDI their requirements, like what they want made and so on. And they had all these manual spreadsheet driven processes to look through that and create schedules and 
you know, say Sikorsky would change that every week and it would, it's a, someone's full-time job to just keep up with that. So they developed software that took, ingested all that information and automatically essentially did many of the rote tasks that this individual used to have to do on their own. So that's eliminating wastes, right? So now that person, the, the work that took them 30 hours a week has gone down to five and they're able now to do other tasks that add value to the business, right? And so we are able to satisfy the customer better, right? We are able to much more frequently update our own production schedule. We couldn't even alter our production schedule at the rate at which we were getting all these changes in. And that was because we could write our own application to do that work. In another one of our businesses, which is called Orbi, that does composites manufacturing in Denver, um, the engineers have a certain process where they have to lay up essentially strips of composite to um, form a certain shape that will then be stamp formed. And that specific process of where those layers are put is manual. And so they developed a CAD tool to automate that process you know, following the intent of the engineer, essentially, again, eliminating rote work, eliminating waste, allowing there to be more creative work done by people. So a lot of the work we do with Rebuild Digital and Core Software Group really hits the, at the center of lean, right, which is, you know, continuous improvement with respect for people. So all that work is about freeing people from mundane and therefore, by definition, more error-prone work, because if it's boring, you're going to make errors, and, and unleashing their time to add value to the business. And we see that that improve those improvements happening quite quite rapidly and then we can use that time to grow our business exactly yep and and come up with new ways to satisfy and, and delight our customers right mm. it's one of the things that so matt kind of pointed to me when when you made a comment about the you know someone's full-time job to be sort of working with all this data or whatever and you know on when we were coming over here today we were talking about you know, one of the risks we see when technology is layered into operations with a lot of like people, a lot of humans doing the work, is that that can at times lead to a situation where for, for that technology to do what it's promising to do, what it claims it can do or whatever, what it's meant to do, what it was uh, established to do, it requires those people to in turn start like working for the machine, mm, you know, right. Feed, feed it, it, feed it, feed it. Right. About real-time condition that the machine can't perceive. Right. They essentially become the sensors exactly. for the computer. Exactly. But, you know, I guess how you were describing it was that, that the technology is coming in really to be the enhancer, the enabler, the expander of human technologies, even, you know, to, to, to work at the intent of the engineer. As you yes. Said. So maybe you could. It's very deliberate, right? And I, I think it's, I'm glad you mentioned it because I think it's very easy to do the other. Right. And it's you have to be thoughtful to ensure that you're doing something that's going to free people up to do more valuable work and, frankly, more satisfying work. That's a deliberate choice. Right. So we regularly talk about that. And again, you you know, you noted Bonnie is very important. Our organization, the chief lean officers and the top couple of people in the whole company and is you know part of our senior leadership team is involved with all major decisions. And that's that's, again, a deliberate choice. This isn't like an addendum thing we're going to also do. This is how we're going to do our business in general. Right. And so by making it central it just naturally permeates into all those things. So for example, Cliff, who runs our software group, hugely interested in the whole lean concepts, had no exposure to that before, as is often the case, unfortunately, we should talk about this in a lot of engineering disciplines. And often you find a lot of engineering disciplines, a lot of resistance to this idea. Like everything I do is super creative and like you can't process, exactly clean that up. I, everything's critical, right? But once you crack the code and you get in there a little bit and they see the benefit, they're all about it. So our core software group, they want to spend as much time as they can in rapid improvement events and understanding value streams because they want their software to be used. They want to deliver software to our team that they use and makes a difference, right? Another simple example is, um, you know, we're a very disparate organization. And as, as Bonnie noted, we depend on collaboration between our companies to create value for customers that no individual company could do on its own. That's mm -hmm. another part of our value proposition, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You need metallics and composites and electronics. And we can check, check, check. We can do all that. And so if you like dealing with us, that makes it easy. But how do you keep track when you're a thousand people as we almost are now? And then eventually we want to be five and 10,000 that person A has these skills, person B has these skills, right? Et cetera. So they're building a really really great, I think, knowledge system and collaboration system that makes it easy for people to figure out where to go and get information, what kind of capital we have, where are the machines I need for this, what time is available for this work. And that's all software that we're developing on our own, largely because, again, as Jeff has said many times and, and may have said in that interview, I don't recall exactly, but it's so much more effective if you can develop it yourself to your own specific requirements than trying mm -hmm. to take an off-the-shelf, you know, POTS application, which you then pay usually quite a bit for and 80% of which doesn't fit your business.
Well, I, you've talked a lot about collaboration over the course of this uh, conversation. It seems to be at the foundation of what you all are trying to do. And I'm curious about one, how do you go about deciding which companies are going to become part of Rebuild when you make an, an acquisition decision? And then how do you go about facilitating them? Because that's one of the hardest things with acquisitions is integrating them in and you, you're building, you know, quite a complicated organization. How do you go about successfully integrating them into a collaborative environment? So first, how do you go about deciding who, who would make a good fit into this organization for strategic purposes and collaborative purposes? And then how do you go about enabling that collaborative environment? It's a great question. And I will, I will say that the two parts of the question you asked are really the same thing. So for us, those are inseparable items. Mm -hmm. So to begin, when we decide we need a certain capability, right, we decide to look for that prospectively. So we have a vision about the kinds of capabilities we need, what we need to satisfy our customers, what areas are of technical or procedural importance, process importance, and then we go look for those companies. The first screen is, do they fit with us culturally? Mm -hmm. So will this company that we want to become a member ascribe to our values, the rebuild way? And so the first conversations are, here's the rebuild way. Let's talk about what it means. And we're really, we mean it. <laughs> so like, is that going to work for you? Right. And, um, you know, that's usually in the early stages, everyone will say yes. Right. Because, you know, it's kind of mom and apple pie. Say, They'll say, you, they feel that, like but test that out. But as you start to get into involved with them as a, a company and engage with them, you can sort of see how they start to operate. So to that point of our, of the 12 companies that have become part of rebuild, only one was a brokered banked process. Okay. So we tend to not participate in auctions to buy companies because the auction process is designed by the investment banks to preclude you from having deep insight into the company and to minimize the time you have with management and with people within the organization to make that assessment because they're concerned that it would be value, you know, degrading for the seller. Mm -hmm. So we don't want to operate in that kind of situation. We do not want to buy a company based on a management meeting and one dinner and making a bid. Like, because if the culture doesn't fit, we're finished. We'll never be able to collaborate the way we want. So we must have a very in-depth knowledge there. So typically we reach out to a company that we're interested in and a lot of them aren't ready to sell or they have unreasonable value expectations, et cetera. But there's a smaller number that find our mission and our principles, not just okay, but exciting. And they're able to reflect back to us why that's exciting to them in a proactive way and talk about how what they do fits with it already or where they would like to change or where it would bring them value. And when we can start to engage with a company on that level, we know that there's a reasonable prospect that we would be a good fit, right? And so then over the course, typically like Applied Logics that, that joined us in November, we were engaged with that company for over a year hmm. before they joined Rebuild, right? Um, because one, there were lots of technical things that had to be resolved about structure and all kinds of things like this. But also they really wanted to make sure that we would be a good home for their company over the long term, right? And so it's really a very in-depth process of cultural alignment. Mm. And then secondarily, but of course important, are they technically capable? Can they do these things? Do they do them effectively? Are they receptive to lean culture? Most of the companies, 99% of them don't have an embedded lean culture, right? Mm. And so how do they feel about that when we start to talk about what that's going to involve? And then the last sort of third of our diligencing process effectively is joint planning for the future. So normally when you're involved in an auction-oriented acquisition like driven by most of the PE environment, you don't get time to engage with management about the future. You just are focused on the past and validating that what they said is accurate about the past. So in that last third, we spend a ton of time planning the next 18 months, our strategy for the business. How are we going to grow the business? Where are the weaknesses in the business? And so we are very you know, in-depth there. And that means that, frankly, I would say, even once we've gotten to that stage, fully a third to 40% of the businesses that we've been engaged with at that point, we don't close because we ultimately determine one or the other, that it's not a really strong cultural or technical or operational fit. Mm -hmm. So I hope that gives you a bit of a sense of it, but it's really about um, building a partnership over a long period of time 
to get the right people inside because we've made mistakes and you know those where we didn't do a good job of that are incredibly painful to drive collaboration to drive yeah, not trying to forward. bolt on collaboration following the acquisition it's not plan, possible yeah well so they do it along the way so so engaging then in that joint planning for the future suggests that that on from both sides there's going to be a continued involvement i mean uh, continued participation in that future post right. acquisition so even that's got to be a management challenge of bringing these capabilities from rebuild prior to acquisition and those that exist within the organization and just the individuals and yeah the way and all that we manage that a little bit it's just important i think to note is we have <clears throat> it's really a misnomer but we call it the quiet period so after the close <laughs> Because there's a whole bunch of, you know, like paperwork, nonsense, all kinds of stuff that goes on up to the close, right? Legal this and all the kinds of stuff. Sure, sure, sure. Like everyone needs to take a deep breath. We sort of just leave them to do what they were doing, yeah. right? Other than like HR alignment, payroll alignment, sort of these things. That's why I say it's not really a quiet period. We we like the thought, think it was a quiet period and, and we got the feedback from our yeah, companies. It's not that, really quiet. It's not that quiet. I mean, like, <laughs> got HR and finance need X, Y, Z, A, B. Okay. So, but we used to, in the beginning, because a lot of us came out of private equity. So we brought our private equity habits. And one of those habits is as soon as close happens, you're like descend upon the company to try and start driving change. And in some ways, you don't care how many, how much China you break while you're doing that, because in three years, you're out. And so you have to move the business forward, no matter how unpleasant that is for everybody. We buy our eighth principle is that we are buying businesses forever. Like our philosophy is that we're buying a business and it's going to be with us forever. Like your sibling, you're stuck with your siblings forever, right? So, you know, we want to take that long view. And so it's not essential that in the first week and month or whatever that we, you know, reorganize the deck chairs in the place, right? What's, what is essential is that they start to feel the culture in a positive way and that other parts of the business feel their culture in a positive way and find ways to start interacting small you know, small ball at first, and then we kind of grow that, right, over time. So um, there'd be, there's lots of great examples of that where, you know, we initially seed them with a project that will service another company of ours, or they have an area they've identified as a weakness, and Bonnie will send someone to help train them on a solution. But really almost like a point solution kind of approach just to kind of exercise the muscle and get, get some of those ties being built across the company. And then over time, that just starts to naturally ramp up. They sort of start to see okay, you know what, we are going to, because we always promise them, hey, the rebuild culture is this, it's guided by these principles, they're immutable, but how you do things locally, as long as they fit within that umbrella, all you, right? We want that differentiation and operational methodology because we think that diversity, it's like biodiversity, gives you like sort of extra strength and extra robustness. And so when they see that we're not going to you know, crush their souls in the first, you know, period of time, then all of a sudden the sort of like floodgates open, right? That's one thing I personally recognize that that I think is a strength is that somehow we're able to get everyone to feel the overall rebuild culture and alignment with the principles, but still be very respectful of the local culture that was there because we buy companies because they're really good at something and we want to protect that goodness you know, at the same time that we have an overall community of rebuild and we feel connected. And and one thing I think is, is also um, a nice feature is that we reward and recognize that collaboration. Hmm. Um, environments that I came from before, different sites didn't really want to help each other because my numbers are based on what I do, not, hmm. not to help another sister site or sister company. But here we have a nice framework to recognize that with actually our core software group actually built a, the ability for us to recognize that through something we call Collaboratron. And so it's actually recognized <laughs> and rewarded when you do things to help your member companies or sister companies. Yeah, a, a non-trivial part of everybody in the company's bonuses and everyone in the company is on the same bonus structure, whether they're sweeping a floor or designing mm -hmm. something or running a plant, is built on how much collaboration you personally and or your member company did for others. How do you define collaboration? So where another member company essentially, you know, contracted with you informally or formally yeah. to do something for them, yeah. right? And and the other thing that we put in place, which again may seem obvious, but has been very effective, is that if you do work for another company in Rebuild, the buyer, let's call it the internal buyer, pays cost. So they are always incented to get it internally. It's always cheaper. But we always, for the seller, 
uh, add it back as if you did it at full market. So mm. your financial performance, your budgeted performance, all that stuff is indifferent to an internal or an external customer, mm. right? And so we want to remove that kind of bias that Bonnie talked about, like, I can't really help you because I'm going to have to do it at cost and I can sell this capacity to someone down the street for more, right? We always want to, you know, ingest as much of our own capability as we can, right? Eat our own dog food, obviously, while we're serving external customers. And as we move from doing, we have a progression here, of the kind of work we want to do we call it from level four to level one and as we move from level four which is very simple built to print or engineer by the hour all the way towards number one which is own product the way stations in the middle are more sophisticated built to print work and then um, system work as we've been moving more towards system work we require we need that collaboration we're not just making you know a piece part for someone we're taking 100 piece parts, electrifying them, putting them to an assembly, making sure it works and delivering it complete to be installed in an aircraft, right? When you're doing that, you have to have seamless collaboration. There can't be uh, NIH, you know, not invented here kind of mindset at all. We would we would collapse, right? So Bonnie, you touched on something that I've, I've been curious about in this model, which you, you talked about, you know, the companies that we acquire, I mean, there's lots of reasons, but one of them would be that they've got a special capability in an area, but you know, not all. And of course, within the broader organization, you know, all these capabilities can be combined into you know a sum that's greater than than their parts. Um, I've been curious about so when you engage with an organization that you know doesn't have certain capabilities, like with the small and medium companies, you know, with technology or whatever, and there's a need to kind of supplement that to bring in either from another organization or even just personnel. That would enter into an organization to provide that capability that currently doesn't exist is there are there examples of where after that capability is like put in play and established as as valuable as necessary but we want to then transfer that capability into that organization not rely on another company or rely on some group and kind of how that would how that transfer of capability or that development of, of a unique capability would yeah. happen within an organization. I think the whole lean organization is a perfect example. Your trainers work often with the companies at first to introduce lean concepts, and then we hire local resources to drive the lean transformation within each company. So we start by introducing something that they don't know. Mm -hmm. Like A3 right? or... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We lead A3s or value stream mapping activities, you know, rapid improvement activities, right? Mark and Dave and so on. And then we we provide the resources for them to hire in their own staff mm. to kind of accelerate those processes, right? I'm thinking a little bit too about the, the lean transformation process itself. Um, so one of our member companies, you mentioned CDI, um, we mapped out their aluminum sheet metal value stream, very important value stream, lots of growth there. Um, and they are running uh, rapid improvement events, uh, about one per month, um, some projects and just do it, uh, tackling areas throughout that value stream. And some of those areas um, also touch other member companies. So we've had people from composite resources come in and be on a rapid improvement event that's around a, a topic that they also share that same type of process and those learnings kind of what I call Yoketon across, they take it back with them and that, that goodness um, transfers across the company. So we're, I think we're intentionally doing that. So we've, we've made um, a commitment for every rapid improvement event we do that we think about, okay, is there a subject matter expert in the company in this area we can bring in or is there another member company that does something similar that they can take this goodness back? Um, one other thing I wanted to mention that I'm kind of proud of is when we started the um, the lean transformation at CDI and uh, we made a commitment to do one rapid improvement event a month, um, I suggested that we have one of our senior leadership team members be on each one of those rapid improvement events. We have one per event mm -hmm. and uh, you got to block your calendar. You got to leave your title at the door. You're not the answer person. You're on the team like everybody else. And I don't know, within uh, two or three days, every one of the senior leadership team members had signed up for an event. You hmm. can see it. You noticed our transformation roadmap on the wall I did. Yeah. when you walked in. So you can see that. And um, yeah, Miles has signed up for September. 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 Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm seeing some real goodness come out of that. Um, the, the senior leadership team members are 
course, learning a lot and getting a lot of goodness from it. But the team members themselves also mm. really appreciating that support. Um, and I was there at CDI earlier this week. And one thing I heard one of the senior, the local leaders say there is that, you know, in the past when we tried to, to drive improvements, it felt like it was us doing it. And now I feel like everybody is helping to drive the improvements here. Like everybody's all in. Mm-hmm. It's not just us fighting our own battles. We're, we're all in. And I thought that was pretty powerful. Did we get to the heart of your question? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, LEI um, engages with organizations that are on a lean transformation or, or, or tackling some business challenge and, and looking to lean thinking and practices to, to, to do that with. And, you know, one of the, I mean, LEI is a small not-for-profit organization. We're not a- attempting to build relationships with organizations of dependence. I mean, we're we're attempting to to transfer whatever right. know-how Localize we possess onto that organization. And so that transference of capability uh, and the challenge of that, which you know happens within organizations from lean groups to the rest of the organization, or in LEI's case, from LEI and our folks on you know to, to these organizations, is just an immensely challenging endeavor to, to transfer capability yeah. to, to provide that to other folks. And so that was, I guess, the yeah, I mean, another that I was getting at. Another element, I guess, or an aspect of this that we face a lot is, so we have businesses, again, we bought <clears> these small to medium-sized businesses. They become members that have certain technical capabilities. We want to expand the use of those capabilities much more dramatically than their own footprint could sustain. So a good example is we've been uh, very successful at capturing system-oriented business and composite structures, right? To the extent that we'll have to produce, I think, in 2025 or 2026, something like 10x what our current companies produce, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to break ground on a brand new facility, which we're going to announce next week. It'll be, you know, start as 170,000 square foot and go to a million. And we have to essentially locate processes there from our core companies. And so a good example of that is Composite Resources in South Carolina. They are awesome at taking in complicated structural jobs and developing the tooling and the process to make composite parts for those things. Mm -hmm. But they do that at the quantity 1 to 20. And where we're going is we need to do 5,000. Now, it would be the mistake to try to have them do 5,000 in our view, because it would become so all-consuming for that business, you would lose their special sauce, their nature, which is to Mm. deal with a difficult technical challenge and solve that challenge and move on to the next one. So this new facility will be essentially a repository for the scaling Mm. of the technologies of each of these businesses. So one way that we're able to affect that technology transfer in a way that doesn't feel threatening to any of the member companies and is actually quite empowering is, hey, you're going to get to keep doing what you're doing and more of it, and we're going to give you tons of capital and people to do it. And by the way, you're going to give rise to like a brand new facility that's going to just build off your technology and build a lot of it. And that's exciting for people, actually. So we try to create a real, we don't even have to create it. There's like a real sense of I'm part of something bigger than like the task I'm doing. I'm part of, again, we're a mission-driven organization like you, right? Maybe we're for profit. You're not seeing in some ways, though, where they just feel like they're part of something bigger, right? And so that facilitates this kind of transfer because it's not about... Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. keeping my part of the pie. It's like we're going to make the pie way bigger. Well, I'm curious, and, and perhaps you've had experience about this already, but maybe even as this facility comes online. So, you know, one of the things I think often that occurs in lean transformations, lean implementations, or whatever is is there's this concept of like a model line of like kind of picking a small area and beginning to introduce these ideas and test them out and you know build some capability and whatever. Um, and for the folks that participate in that, which actually my own introduction to Lean was was running a coffee shop for Starbucks in Portland, Oregon, that was the company's model line. So the folks that participate in that initial experiment, I mean, the the attraction, the 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 uh, appeal of like, you know, sort of providing that, you know, launching that, giving rise to mm-hmm. similar experiences across the company. I mean, that that's pretty awesome, right? Yeah. Like, wow, I'm 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 participating in this thing now. And I will have a greater right. Every Starbucks you go into, you'll see uh, exactly. your process. Yeah. Um, but on the receiving end, right? That that's it, it's a different thing, mm-hmm. right? That, that they so you, you, I think earlier you talked about like the not here, you know, syndrome or whatever. 
Um, and so from, you know, in, in this new facility and, and the folks that weren't there at the beginning, they aren't giving rise. Yeah. <laughs> they are but the, they are they, actually. They are, okay. So I don't I don't see it quite that way. Right. Because, for example, when we're going to put this, you know, expanded facility into this you know, new plant, mm -hmm. the people that are going to be involved in the new plant are participating very early in how that's going to happen. They own it just as much as anybody else. So it doesn't show up on trucks and get backed up, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, we do 2P process. They're involved in that and what it should be and how it should be laid out. And, you know, a good example, we just did a 2P on the stick Sticks, line mm -hmm. that we're putting into our Denver plant that's being designed in our New Hampshire plant. Mm -hmm. And then I was on a subsequent call that another project being done in New Hampshire. All they could talk about was how they were going to 2P with the plant it was going to go into, They're which is saving. a different plant, to work on that. And so it just breaks that well, so that's right your down. Way. So yes. that's your way. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's a participatory way yes. in the creation of our version here, right? Right through a 2P or something, right. uh, which uh, I guess, in you know, it isn't always the way, right. I guess, that gets employed I, yeah. to share learning or to... I think, and you can always make it better, right? Okay. It never stops. So you, yeah. you, then you're going to find ways to even make that better and then continue to share that. Yeah. I would say like organizationally, we're very hierarchical culturally, by which I mean we top down drive a culture mm -hmm. and whether on the lean side and or again our principles. But as far as like what we do and where we're going to do it, how it's going to be done, that is quite collaborative and flat. Mm -hmm. Right. So like we have kind of these two different modalities sure. of acting that are different. Right. Like I don't dictate that stuff. But I, for sure, I see my job as dictating the culture, right? And being a keeper of the culture, making sure the culture is constructive and, you know, mm -hmm. in line with our principles, right? And that's Bonnie's role too, is like to drive that lean culture, right? And um, I think the culture was was defined with the 16 principles very thoughtfully before, yeah. just at the inception of the company, right? Right. It's very it was the first important. thing we did. It was yeah. three months. Cultures before. first, and then everything yeah. else follows. I want to be respectful of time and ask uh, one last question. You talked about how motivation is important for the member companies. What about your personal motivations of all the things you could be doing in your careers? Why Why this? Why Why, why join Rebuild, Bonnie? Well, and I've only been with Rebuild eight, eight months. months. Um, I honestly, I fell in love with, with the mission. And uh, in my career, I was part of a company that uh, did move all of their manufacturing offshore. And I watched that happen over the period of years and um, actually somewhat had my my hands in it, you know, to keep my job. I was part of the team that was helping move things. And, and I think as I reflect, that never felt good. And this feels very, very redemptive to me. Mm. And then the other piece of that is I'm a lean geek. I, I, I love lean thinking as part of who I am. And, and when I looked at the 16 principles of rebuild, and I actually do this exercise with teams, and they tend to get it too, is, you know, we we take kind of how Toyota defined the two pillars of lean. They, you know, there's five key points to define the two pillars. And then we look at that and we map it over to the rebuild way, our 16 mm. principles. And if you did a Venn diagram, it's all in there. Mm. And like the point, lean thinking's in there. It's who we are, it's in our DNA. And I was like, how can I not be a part of this? Like there's, there's, there's no way I can say no. And, and like, I get excited about it every day. I get excited about it as I'm talking, you know, about it now. It's, it's, it's a great place to be, um, you know, doing something very mission driven and doing it with lean thinking embedded in, in who we are. Miles. Yeah. For me, I mean, in some ways, this is the culmination of everything I've been interested in doing since I was 17. When I was 17 in high school, the Japanese were doing a number on a lot of U.S. industries. Uh, you know, good for them, but not good for us and maybe being able to afford democracy. And I kind of was a linear thinker and pretty optimistic. I thought I should do something about that. I thought I should own factories. If you're going to own factories, you should be an engineer. If you should be an engineer, you should go to MIT. So I did that. Like, So it just seemed like I guess it was going to work out. But when I got to MIT, I became a machinist and I got really entrenched in like what it felt like to work on a floor and all the challenges that are involved with that. And a gentleman, Chad Clausen, who's at Rebuild with us now, and I started a company at MIT to develop a new kind of industrial control system that engaged with employees. So like really innately was this idea of respect for people in the kind of work we did. I didn't have a name for it or whatnot. And then when I was, when I was in graduate school, I was introduced to Lean uh, for the first time. And then when I got into, I, I ended up running a machine tool company uh, that was private equity backed. It got in tons of trouble. 
uh, before I was running it. And I was running a little sub for it of a company they bought that I founded. And uh, I ended up coming to run that business and turning it around. And then I was an operations, which was code for turnaround person in private equity for 16 years. And what I saw was two things. One, most of the companies I was turning around because I focused on industrials were companies that had offshored their production. And once they had offshored their production, they soon forgot how to make it. And then they soon lost the ability to design it. And then soon after that, they found their vendor supplying someone else with something that looked an awful like lot like what they had asked them to do in the first place. And so while they might have had a three or four year bump in profitability as they became, quote unquote, asset light, they eventually collapsed because they didn't have any differentiation anymore. They were, really, they were just a distributor. Right. That wasn't really enough to create value for the customers. And they just got cut out of that process. So we dealt with that. And the other thing I dealt with was, frankly, the toxicity of a short term private equity thinking on these companies that if if you couldn't come up with something that would give you a strong return in a year, it was off the table. And when you you shorten the timeline like that and you restrict the space of things you can do, you really you sort of sentence companies that are in businesses with longer time constants to death, basically. And even in that context, like lean, everyone in private equity talked about lean all day long, but what they really meant is we're gonna come in and have a crash program and fix a process and put up some posters, like, you know, that show safety green and all that. And then we're gonna stop, we're gonna roll the, we're gonna sell the company off that. And, and it's not cultural, it's not embedded, it's really done a disservice in my view to the adoption of lean techniques overall, because it, it feels to the people involved like an imposition, not helping them, right? And clearly, if you're not doing it in a systematic long-term way, it's hard to maintain that promise that we're going to improve this process and take waste out, but you're going to have other work to do and it's going to be meaningful. In the private equity context, it was, we're going to improve this process, we're going to take waste out of it, and we're going to cut the workforce, right? That's what happened. Mm -hmm. And so I saw all those things and the negative effects they had. And so when the opportunity arose, uh, I got reconnected with Jeff Wilkie, who I went to graduate school with, to kind of try and reimagine how to do that. I think we sort of just were at the right place at the right time. Our experience, COVID, people reasonably in a panic about U.S. manufacturing. It was relative to how it had been in the past, easy to get the funding to build a real company that was dedicated to this for what we expect to be a quarter or half a century. So it's just, it's what I always wanted to do, right? And so like I wake up every day loving it. I like don't want to go to sleep every day. I like <laughs> want to just keep working on it. And we have a lot of people that have that view in one way or another, one degree or another throughout the business. And it makes it a really exciting and fun adventure for us, frankly. I'd like to thank Miles and Bonnie one last time for joining us here on the podcast and thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Rebuild Manufacturing, head over to their website, rebuildmanufacturing.com. And for all things related to lean, head over to lean.org. Thanks for listening.